This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your guest host, Ann Moyer, a molecular genetic pathologist at Mayo Clinic. So we all have blood circulating in our bodies, and it's clearly something extremely important, but I don't know if everyone's aware that it's also really important to have diversity in the blood supply for the people that might need a blood transfusion. So today we're rounding with the bow tie bandit of blood himself, Dr. Justin Kreuter, a Mayo Clinic transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Kreuter. Hey, thanks for having me, Dr. Moyer. All right, so let's jump into this topic. I think it's really exciting, and it's a topic that when I was a resident, I rotated through the blood bank, but I didn't really think a lot, I guess, about diversity in the blood supply or why it would be important, so let's find out more. So what exactly do you mean when you say diversity in the blood supply, and why does it matter? Yeah, so what I mean by that is it's important to have a diverse blood donor population donating those uh, blood cells. So although it's true that uh, all uh, blood cells, all uh, erythrocytes are red, all red cells are red, um, and uh, the bags are all going to look the same to just the somebody, if you were to look at a bag of blood, they all look the same. But in the laboratory, when we're looking and trying to find compatible blood for patients because of antibodies that people form, it's important that we've got diversity in the bags we can hang uh, look at because each donor has different antigens, proteins and carbohydrates on their red cell surface that can cause big immune consequences for that transfusion. So if we have a diverse blood donor in the donor uh, pool uh, supporting and supplying our hospitals, then in the blood bank, we're able to find something that's gonna be compatible for every patient. Wait, so are you telling me that it's more complicated than just that A, B, O, plus, minus, and that there might be differences among different ethnic groups? Yeah. That's why I got a job. <laughs> if, if there wouldn't be a, subspe- a boarded subspecialty in medicine if it was as simple as APO. <laughs> Probably not. So yeah, that's, that's what uh, earns my uh, salary here <laughs> is the fact that, yeah, there's, there's 600 plus antigens on, on the red cell uh, surface and all of them can be clinically significant. It's like a giant Sudoku board that we're trying to find compatible blood for patients sometimes. Oh, okay. So if we only issued O negative blood to everyone, would we still need diversity in the blood supply? Absolutely. So, you know, I think ABO is the king we think of when we come to blood transfusion. Certainly, I agree with that. That's a big uh, safety measure for patients that we're issuing ABO compatible blood. And that's why there's so much emphasis on that we have the right blood in tube. And if a tube is even slightly mislabeled, the blood bank is never, ever, ever going to accept that for doing compatibility testing. Uh, Beyond ABO, there's all these other uh, proteins and carbohydrates on the red cell that can uh, cause a hemolytic reaction potentially if transfused into a patient that has an antibody directed against that. I mean, ultimately, when you're talking about uh, blood transfusion, and here I'm thinking about red cell transfusions, 
that's the same as an organ transplant. And just in an organ transplant, it makes sense to all of us think about, you know, oh, is that heart going to be compatible with the patient or is that kidney going to be compatible? And we can understand that the same thing exists uh, with blood transfusion, even though uh, that's a bag of, of red stuff on the shelf. And from an ABO standpoint, we're making sure that's compatible. There's a lot more complexity there. And that's why we have these uh, team of uh, lab medicine uh, professionals that are really taking sure, making sure that we're issuing compatible stuff to patients. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So in that answer, you mentioned something that I thought was kind of scary. You mentioned this hemolytic reaction. And so if I've got a friend or a family member and they're planning on going in for a surgery soon, do I need to be calling up the blood bank and talking to them and demanding something? Or, or what should I be looking for to make sure that they're going to not have one of those reactions? That's a good question because this is where we get into why this topic is a little complex. Although we want diversity in the blood supply, for probably the vast majority of patients that get transfused, it really doesn't matter that we have diversity in the blood supply uh, because most people that are getting transfused, um, they are uh, not going to have these antibodies to these proteins and carbohydrates on the red cell surface. And if they don't have them, then we don't need to worry about them, about matching them up front except for when we do. <laughs> and that's really in the patients that are going to be transfused throughout their lifetime and because they're going to be exposed to, you know, uh, upwards of 100 plus transfusions in their life, uh, we need to take special uh, care to try to provide uh, matched stuff uh, as closely as possible. As you can imagine, if there's 600 different ways that we can be different <laughs> on our red cell surface, uh, it can be really challenging to find a an identical matched red cell. But you know, we certainly work to do our best. And what helps us do a better job is having diversity in the blood supply because some of these protein and carbohydrate differences have an ethnic base to them. So, you know, if you have a, a white donor and a black donor, there's going to be some differences in what proteins are on those red cells. Again, for most of us, that's not gonna matter. And that's why people don't need to go into the hospital and say, you know, if I'm a white person to demand that I, I get, my uh, sister gets a blood transfusion from somebody who's white, um, you know, the lab is going to be doing this testing in the background. But if my sister who's white uh, develops an antibody against an antigen that is more commonly expressed on black donors, the lab will see that when they do that compatibility testing and they will be able to go to and probably find a better unit, one that's going to be compatible for my sister, uh, based on uh, the lack of that protein that she's formed an antibody to. Oh, that's great. That's so reassuring to know that the laboratory takes all of these measures to make sure that my friend or family member won't have a hemolytic reaction. And it sounds like it's a very complicated process. So it's also good to hear that there's a lot of coordination of, of these it, efforts. It's amazing. And I mean, it deserves a big shout out to our medical laboratory scientists that are in the lab that are doing this on a real time basis. Because although a lot of our transfusions are happening non-emergently and we have, uh, you know, a couple of hours to do this compatibility testing, uh, our medical laboratory scientists are really doing this also for patients that are uh, bleeding emergently and, and trying to issue what's the best thing that they can identify for these 
very complicated patients sometimes. Yeah, it sounds like that could get to be a high-pressure situation at times. So you mentioned in your answer that some of the patients that are going to be receiving multiple blood products throughout their lifetime might be the people that this is matching is more important for. Is that something you can tell me a little bit more about? Like what specific patients do you mean? Are there certain disorders or, or what kind of characteristics would these patients have? Yeah, so the, the patients that we're really concerned about uh, are the patients that are gonna be receiving multiple transfusions really throughout their life. So for me, at least at this point, I need to knock on some wood. I don't have a medical disorder that's gonna require uh, transfusion. So for me right now, it's sort of looking like, uh, if I got into a bad car accident or something happened emergently, I would need transfusions, but I would probably need a few for that episode to get me through, and then I really wouldn't be needing a transfusion. Or if my father were to go in for um, a heart surgery, he might need some transfusions during that procedure, but you know, otherwise he's not gonna need sustained transfusion support. In contrast, uh, the patients that come to mind are uh, patients that have sickle cell disease because they typically do require a number of transfusions throughout their lifetime. Uh, thalassemia, so in, again, another uh, blood disorder where people have uh, red cells that don't have the normal characteristics of uh, the rest of us. And so they're gonna be transfusion dependent. So in those situations, those are the times where people are saying, you know what, we should probably find um, and prospectively match them for these differences as much as we can. And that's where it really kind of shown, I think the first thing to us about that there are some of these ethnic uh, differences. So in areas where there are uh, large um, uh, black don blood donors, uh, they're, they are more easily, they are more able to support transfusions for these sickle cell patients and, and it's easier to find these identical units versus in areas like, for example, up here in Rochester, Minnesota, we don't really have a large black blood donor population. And so when we do have a patient come here who has sickle cell uh, disease and we need to transfuse them, it's more difficult to find a blood immediately available. And sometimes we have to order it from another city in order to have something compatible for them. Or I guess to say, to have something that's the ideal blood for them. And that's why, although we have a, a small black donor population in Rochester, we don't, it shouldn't necessarily be that way. <laughs> uh, we actually do have a, uh, a, a large uh, black population in Rochester, Minnesota, but we just need to uh, better tap into that community as blood donors to have that diversity so that when there's somebody that has sickle cell disease, we're more easily able to say, oh yeah, we got that, we can support that. That patient can go for this surgery right now, no sweat. As opposed to saying, oh, wait a minute, we don't really have uh, the ideal units in stock. Can you hold off for a few days while we order uh, blood from the Twin Cities, for example? Okay, well, what happens though if one of these patients that needs a special type of blood or special unit shows up in the emergency room and they were just in a horrible car accident and we don't have that blood on the shelf. They're probably not going to want to wait around for a few days. So w what do we do about them in that situation? Yeah. So transfusion medicine is, is um, we, all, we all learn what the right answer is and what the ideal blood product is. But a lot of it is reasoning what is the best right now 
product because that's what situation we often find ourselves in is guess what? You don't have the couple of days to find the ideal blood product or with some of these things where somebody has an antibody to a high incidence antigen and we have to put out a worldwide call to say, does anybody have any blood donor that lacks this high incidence antigen where it's going to be a one in a million chance of finding somebody or less? Uh, you know, we put those calls out. There's going to be plenty of time where that call goes unanswered or not answered soon enough. And, you know, we're going to have to transfuse somebody anyway. And so uh, blood transfusion or transfusion medicine is really focused on um, figuring out based on what the urgency of the clinical need is and the resources that we have, what's the best thing that we can uh, support the patient with. So it's all about risk and it's all about trying to minimize the risk. Uh, we ultimately try to minimize the risk by taking it away, by finding that identical or compatible blood for the patient. Uh, if we don't have that available, uh, then we can provide blood that is not matched, but just hopefully avoids the antibodies that the patient has. If we can't find that, we actually have to transfuse when the person has an antibody, then we are going to, you know, obviously have a conversation with our uh, clinical colleagues about this not being compatible, but because of the urgent medical need, we're going to transfuse, but we really need to watch this patient carefully for hemolysis and uh, the precautions we take about making sure that the kidneys stay wet and, and try to minimize the risk for the patient as much as possible. So in a pinch, you can get by because you'll have red blood cell units of some sort, but it's really not ideal for that patient in some situations, and it'd be way better if you could actually match in all situations, it sounds like. Absolutely. So, okay. Join us for our upcoming Transfuse Conference on May 12th through the 13th in Rochester, Minnesota. Visit mayocliniclabs.com forward slash 2020 Transfuse for more information. So you said that earlier, sometimes some of the ethnic minorities, you, you might have a large prevalence of those populations in your community, but yet not as many of them are potentially donating blood. Does that mean that there's some sort of barrier that needs to be overcome that would help encourage more donations? Yeah, in, in that barrier, it's it's uh, very it's multifaceted. So I mean, in some respects, uh, we as a blood collection community haven't been the best in the past at reaching out to some of these minority communities. Honestly, because, you know, there's some work involved, uh, additional work involved. So, you know, whereas you might, if, if we have um, a number of uh, white uh, recruiters, uh, they might have, you know, just natural connections with some white uh, organizations in the community where we'll be doing mobile blood drives. Um, also, when you talk about recruiting and engaging minority communities, sometimes then it brings in the fact that, well, do we have translators on staff? Mm -hmm. So if we're going into Latino community, do we have uh, people that can speak uh, Spanish or Portuguese? And and um, it gets into you know some of the work, additional work that's involved. So that's some of the aspects on the blood collector uh, is that there's... Um, we haven't been that good at engaging, but then also there's certainly we have to recognize there's been this cultural uh, damage to that relationship as well, damage between uh, the minority communities and the medical establishment. 
uh, when you think about situations like Tuskegee, where a lot of honesty wasn't uh, forthcoming, and the fact of you know I'm going to let these people, these you know all white staff, come in, and I'm going to roll out my arm and and uh, donate blood is is sometimes uh, a big challenge to overcome, and it also doesn't help that we we go out and we will we'll show up to these communities here in Rochester. We'll show up to our uh, Somali community and on our pamphlets uh, advertising blood donation it's a bunch of white people on there <laughs> which it doesn't help the uh you know this sort of you know idea that we want diversity in the blood supply okay well so one thing that i've seen and heard about is sometimes with some organs like let's say a heart they're starting to figure out ways that you can maybe 3d print some sort of scaffold and then you can populate cells onto it and there's a lot of work going on in regenerative medicine as a whole so the red blood cells seem like they're pretty simple. I mean, they don't even have a nucleus. So they don't even have genes in them or chromosomes, which is my favorite part of the cell. So shouldn't you be able to just, you know, manufacture a red blood cell, kind of make one up, and then this diversity thing in the blood supply, it shouldn't be a problem because you could put whatever antigens on the red blood cells that you wanted, couldn't you? Yeah, it, you know... I think this is a common question I especially get like when I lecture at the medical school here because, you know, the, the, you know, these learners have really kind of come up with this uh, idea of 3D printing and biomanufacturing and all this possibility. And there's a lot of excitement about it. It it turns out that it's a little bit of a wicked uh, problem to deal with in part because these antigens these proteins and carbohydrates that are on the red cells, uh, many of them actually will serve some function that help that red cell have a normal lifespan and things like that and have normal regulation. So to, to like manufacture like a, a naked uh, red cell, I'm using finger quotes here, <laughs> a naked red cell, uh, you know, is actually, you know, kind of a, a Frankenstein that is a less useful uh, red cell potentially. So that's one of the challenges that comes up is to make something just devoid of proteins actually doesn't behave like a normal uh, red cell. The other thing is to uh, scale up. And so there's a lot of um, interest in kind of making these uh, cells that are going to be compatible. And it may be the fact that we don't make this sort of Frankenstein stuff, but we kind of actually grow up uh, some of these uh, more common uh, phenotypes that we come across. And um, but then the challenge there comes with just kind of building up a sufficient inventory and to uh, upscale that and upscale that in a way that's um, that actually answers the clinical need. And, and as you're aware, there's really an ebb of and flow as far as uh, when we need the blood on our shelves and all blood, even manufactured blood, I'm sure is going to have a shelf life uh, to it. And so um, that's one of the other kind of complications that comes in with the problem is once we actually figure out about manufacturing, this is actually upscaling it so it can be relevant. But, you know, that certainly is really exciting because, you know, that's going to help us overcome the challenges of having that blood immediately available. You're not going to come across these situations where people have run out of their blood supply. And so somebody had to pass away as a result, which honestly right now is a big concern as we talk in the transfusion medicine community about mass casualty events and how we respond to them. Uh, we want to have uh, this you know, giant inventory immediately available to us, but you know, when we least expected it. 
Well, I guess maybe we'll have to rely on some of those sci-fi movies and dream about the day when we can just 3D print up the red blood cells in real time and not even have to have an inventory, but it didn't sound like that's coming anytime soon from, from that discussion. Yeah, yeah, no, it, but although there's interest, I think maybe a future podcast uh, coming back about, uh, you know, efforts being made for blood substitutes. The next couple of years, I think, given the interest in mass casualty events and how we best manage them, that might be coming to the forefront. Well, that's good to, to know that maybe that's something to think about in the future. But are there any other areas that are important for the diversity of the blood supply that you think will be changing in the future? Or where do you see this topic going in the future? I, I honestly see, particularly for the near future, this this is just going to not, this is something that's not going to go away. It's going to remain. And it's going to be something that uh, I, I think as all the listeners who are medical professionals, you know, certainly I, I give a call out to you to, uh, you know, spread the word that we need a diversity in the blood donor uh, community and uh, to recognize how can we help our blood collectors realize uh, and get inroads to some of these communities. So, you know, if you're an African-American physician, nurse, medical laboratory professional, uh, and you get your blood from some blood provider, you know, giving them feedback uh, and telling them what are some organizations they can uh, work with, providing some of those introductions, uh, also giving them feedback about how do their pamphlets look is the way they're, um, and I think, the it's worth giving them the feedback if you go to donate at these organizations if you are a minority um, to give that uh, blood collector feedback about how did what was the cultural competence of their staff did you feel welcomed uh, how was your donation experience that information is, is vital um, as I think the blood donor community we're, we've essentially becoming uh, woke to this challenge uh, but uh, we're also haven't really developed our senses to understand are we what is our cultural competence in engaging with our minority communities and so that feedback is a vital component for us to get better over time yeah i think that's great that in the blood bank area not only do you have the opportunity to, to communicate with the other providers and work as a team to help the patients on the side where they're receiving the blood products but also you've got that opportunity to reach out directly to the blood donors who are providing the products and I think that's really a valid point to make sure you, that they're providing feedback and that that's something you can take to heart to hopefully improve the process and make our blood supply a little bit more diverse going forward. So I think this is really exciting and I've definitely learned a lot so far from everything we've talked about, but are there any specific key takeaways that you really want people to take home from this topic? Yeah, I, I think uh, for the uh, for the non-laboratory medical professional for the learners out there, I think it's important to learn that in transfusion medicine that there's more to life than ABO. <laughs> and uh, that uh, transfusion medicine is really the clinical um, application of a lot of immunology principles. So it's kind of like the math and physics relationship. <laughs> so, you know, the, the math here is the immunology and the physics is the transfusion medicine. And, and that's what came up when we talked about the uh, risk of a hemolytic transfusion reaction that happening because that's immunology principles put in that clinical context. And I think the takeaway for the lab medicine community is just 
highlighting this awareness of the diversity in the blood supply, the importance of it, because we are important uh, mediators for talking about this into our communities. So it's true that a lot of um, blood collectors are not really per the hospital transfusion services, and so there's a little bit of separation there. And so a lot of the medical communities are served by hospital-based transfusion services, and then you have a very separate uh, blood collector service. And so I hope this podcast serves as a way for those of us in the lab medicine hospital-based community to understand uh, what uh, our uh, our lab co- our blood collectors are doing and to kind of provide a little bit of this information to our hospital communities. Because certainly uh, hospitals are a great place for blood collectors to go and do blood drives because people get it. (laughs) They understand. Not just the people that work in the hospital understand, yep, this blood is important, but the people that are uh, coming there, uh, hiking their loved ones to surgery that day or brought their loved ones to a medical appointment, people realize that this is important. Important. And so as much as people as we can have educated in the hospital community that can help spread this word about the importance of diversity and the importance of giving feedback to our blood collectors, I, th- I think the better. I think that's a great answer. And I absolutely love a couple of key concepts that came out of that. So for the learners, the things that you're learning a lot about in a lot of your basic science classes are going to translate right on over into clinical medicine and in the future for you. And I think the other thing is that central theme that keeps coming up in lab medicine as a whole, that there's a lot of coordination amongst groups and a little understanding of how everybody does their job goes a long way to having better coordinated care for our patients. So communication definitely being a key variable or key important um, aspect of laboratory medicine. So thanks so much for giving me so much information about the diversity in the blood supply. So we've been rounding with Dr. Kreuter about diversity and blood supply. And again, thanks for taking the time to discuss this exciting topic with us. And thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. If you have enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. And until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations.